Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen, he doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Listening to the world famous God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. I'm Bill Swirla. We've got a uh, interesting day. The God Whispers are sober, <laughs> in more than one way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it's been a sobering week, I suppose. Uh, yeah, this past a couple week weeks, and, actually. Yeah, and uh, we, you know, we were talking about it, and and we've been uh, doing the usual Facebook chatter and discussing with each other, but. I, I think we came to the conclusion that there comes a time and the place when even when even the uh, the Tappet brothers of theology need to get serious for a second and 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 so we decided to talk about uh, these celebrity suicides and the whole the whole thing of suicide as a couple of pastors who have each had to face these things ourselves and think about them all the time. So. Uh we won't be having the the hijinks that we usually have, but uh, hopefully we'll put together a program here that will be worth your time and uh, hopefully have some benefit to you and maybe others that you love. It, this was kind of triggered initially uh, by the the suicide of Anthony Bourdain, who had a uh, a very profound effect on both Bill and myself with his programs. He he showed us a lot of joy of life, and uh, he he really flamed in, I think, in both of us, uh, a love of cooking in a lot of ways. And Bill, you've written a, a really nice little piece on this that you posted on Facebook. Is, is it just posted on Facebook? Yeah, it's just a note on my Facebook, uh, my personal wall. It's my, my fanboy thing. Um, and, you know, in, in a sense, it was just kind of a cathartic exercise for me. Uh, I was out of town for the weekend and had a little bit of time each morning to kind of write. So I was just kind of getting it out of my system. Mm. But when uh, the news of Bourdain's death by suicide came across my desk, it was from one of my best friends, my best friend, uh, uh, whose daughter, uh, whom I know quite well, too, had uh, Instagrammed him. And I, I couldn't believe it. Well, it just said Bourdain was dead at 61. And my first thought was uh, his body finally gave up, you know, that, that all that running around, drinking drugs, you know, did, like something just shorted out. And then as I began to Google it and the news came through, it was uh, clear what had happened. And, and it was just personally uh, devastating. I, I don't know him, and I'm not one to really glom on to celebrities, but he was kind of one that I did. And it is because of, as you say, all the uh, love for cuisine and culture and, and his travel shows and, and whatnot were kind of inspiring. Uh, the, they kind of inspired uh, not only the adventurer in me, but the bad boy in me. So... Uh, uh, as I as I point out in my my little my little fanboy piece that uh, Bourdain's one of those 
those muses, those voices that I hear when I'm writing. Uh, hopefully not in the pulpit. That doesn't really work very well in the pulpit. But but he his his voice has served me well when I'm when I'm having to talk to like a bunch of seminary students or fellow pastors. Uh, right. Uh, because in a way we're kind of like practitioners. We're like you know fellow cooks in a kitchen or something like that. And so so his his voice and his prose were were very very inspiring to me. And so I feel a great loss. It's it's like I'm denied this now. I'll admit he had a small part in me accepting this call in Cleveland when I, uh, when I found the the uh, I, where was it? Uh, it wasn't Parts Unknown. I don't remember which one of the programs, but he came to Cleveland and he he uh, ate a bunch of Cleveland food and and showed the sights and a bunch of guys surfing in the middle of the winter here and, <laughs> and he went and found them and they ate some food cooked over a campfire cooked at zero degrees and yeah. Uh, you know, just really a guy who had a lot going on, uh, wrote openly about being an addict and, and his um, ongoing recovery from heroin and God only knows what else. And when I when I heard that he had died, that was my first reaction was, oh, fell off the wagon, not good. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. Then we find out that it was uh, suicide and that that's even more tragic. Well, I, in so, fact, uh, you mentioned Cleveland. You know, his his good friend Michael Ruhlman uh, is, yes. is a Cleveland person. I, don't, I think he's a native, actually. I don't know if he still lives in Cleveland, but uh, I associated him with Cleveland. And I remember seeing uh, Ruhlman on one of the TV shows, interviews, uh, people are interviewing people close to Bourdain. And, and uh, I mean, the man just looks shell-shocked. Yeah. You know? I mean, you know, yeah. he, he kept it all together and, and he gave a very, um, very kind and thoughtful analysis. But he just looked like a man who just been like, like just, just hit by a brick. And, and, and he was somebody who knew Bourdain personally and, and, you know, knew the darkness too. Or I think also his uh, friend Eric Repair, the uh, chef in New York, who's his best friend, who found him, and uh, you know that's kind of the great lasting legacy of killing yourself. Somebody finds you, mm-hmm. and then you know how do you get how do you how do you deal with that? Uh, yeah, how, how, uh, how you, that's hard. I, I know people who have found spouses or parents or a child who's committed suicide, and boy, I tell you, you that is a wound. That uh, that it may heal, but the scar is deep, you know. And so, you know, I think about those guys and I pray about those guys because uh, they were close to him. We just kind of knew him from the camera lens. And we all know that's kind of phony anyway. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's tough. Very tough. Well, you know, that finding I often think how terrible it would be to wake up and find your spouse, you know, who had passed in the night next to you. Yeah. And and how traumatizing that would be and how much more. Uh, you go out to the garage to get a Diet Coke and you find your spouse or your kid has gassed himself in the garage or, yeah, or something terrible like that. How, you know, I, I would just scream why for like three months straight, I think, you know. That's and, right. You, you want answers. You want yeah. answers. And some, sometimes uh, the, the whole business is a lot more, shall we say, premeditated and rational. Yes. So that they're yes. able to write letters and leave uh, what they feel is a justification or, or something for what they did. And other times, uh, I don't think it's rational. I, I think it's, it's, uh, it's impulsive. It's, 
it's a moment I, I would I would like, and I've never been there, and I don't want to be there. You know, this is like no. I, I don't want to identify with heroin addiction and and suicidal thoughts. I really don't. But I can imagine it's a little bit like walking on the edge of a very uh, loose gravel trail, and your foot gives way. Uh, you know, the the trail gives way from under your foot, and you didn't see it coming, and you just get swept into you know the abyss. And you just don't you don't you don't see it coming, or maybe you do. I don't know. It, it's interesting the number of people in our culture that struggle with depression and the suicide rates as high as they are. By the way, uh, don't believe what people tell you. America does not have the highest suicide rate in the world, and, and that, <laughs> there, there there are places where people do it more. But. Um, you know, there is so much depression. Symbalta uh, and, and Prozac and others are prescribed so much in our world today. And uh, there are people like me who have been on it because of acute depression at one time in my life. I went through a lot of really bad stuff back to back to back and uh, ended up on antidepressants for a little while. And, and you know, I've, I've looked into that dark place a bit. But there are people who are chronically dealing with this day after day after day, and there's a darkness and... and there's a, a paralyzed uh, nature to the thing, and uh, you, you just can't function, and it's exhausting, and it's tiring, and there's, there's hope and help out there, uh, but you kind of have to get to that place where you're, you're willing to reach out and say, I need help. And, well, you know, uh, you we need to put our, our pride aside a little bit and, and just simply be humble. You mentioned uh, drugs, and how many times do you hear when you're watching those 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 endless and mind-numbing drug commercials on television, where they have to, by law, recite all the potential side effects? Oh yeah, and, suicidal and, thoughts. Yeah, how many of them have thoughts of suicide? And they're usually the sleep aids or the antidepressants. But how many of them have have thoughts of suicide tagging along as one of the potential side effects? And this, the technical term I think is uh, suicide ideation. Mm. That is, it puts the thought in your head, and or it allows the thought to come into your head. And that's an insidious thought, uh, you know, and, and I would say that if anybody has entertained the thought, even remotely, uh, to take that very seriously, because that's like, that's like a virus. It's like, it's like a virus in your computer, you know, it, it, it gets into your thinking and it doesn't go away. And so and it's probably a good time just to mention, and we will a couple of times. I know it's kind of cliche, but it's not cliche that there is, if there's nobody to talk to, there's a, there's a hotline you can call and even text. If you're uncomfortable talking, you can text with people who are just good at listening to and dumping, being, you know, allowed to dump on. But it's, uh, the, it's that the, the National Suicide Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. One eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. It's not an answer. It's a lifeline, and right. and you know when you're going over a waterfall, when you're going over a cliff, you gotta you gotta get a handhold somewhere, and your best friends, your congregation members, your neighbors, your family, your pastor, they may not be there because they're not omnipresent, and so. Um, you know, there's there is that lifeline, and it's it's your cell phone away. So, if if that thought creeps into your head, that needs to be talked through, 
And like I, you, like I, you say, you yeah. got you got to reach out and and talk about it. And I think a lot of us are just ashamed or too proud or afraid or whatever to just simply go to a friend, go to a family member, go to a neighbor, your pastor, whomever, and just say, you know, I I I've thought about this. <laughs> help help me right. help me think through it before the, the, the ground slips out from under you and you're not thinking anymore. I, I think one of the other things that you need to keep in mind is you aren't alone. There, there are millions of people struggling with this right now, even, even if you are. Uh, there, there are still millions of others. You're, you're not, it's not unique to you. And uh, there are people like the Suicide Hotline who are actually trained on how to help you, how to point you in the right directions, how to get you the help that you need. Uh, your pastor might not know. Um, your your friends, your neighbors, your parents, your 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 spouse, they don't necessarily know. But uh, there are people with this training, and, and so the suicide hotline is definitely one of the first places to turn to if you're actually struggling with this. And, and not everybody is, is a good objective listener. No. Uh, because we tend to listen through our own fears, our own anxieties, our own presuppositions, and we're judging, judging, judging all the time. And sadly, you and I were pastors, but I, I got to admit, I do the same. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening, but I'm judging. I'm listening, but I'm trying to figure out how I can fix this, you know. And, mm-hmm. and, and this is, these things are not fixable. You, you, we're not a repair job. We die and rise. That's how we're saved. But, but they're not repairable, but, but we can walk through the dark valley of the shadow of death because, you know, the Lord is with us. And, and that's something we need to keep reminding each other of, that we're not alone, even when we are alone. Hmm. I, I was yeah. talking to Arthur Just, uh, he's a friend of mine, he's professor at our Fort Wayne Seminary, and he said, you know, one of the besetting maladies in our life today is isolation. That, that's very true. I believe that. You know, we could be surrounded by people. We can we can have our lives just completely crowded. We we can be on a crowded bus, on a train. We can live in a, a crowded uh, townhouse complex or apartment complex and be isolated. I, I think we're seeing it more and more. The millennials. I just uh, came across a video today saying that the millennials aren't having sex and all this. But I think that the reality behind all of this is they are connecting with other people in a real face to face kind of way. People need human interaction, real human interaction, face-to-face. They need to be touched. Uh, they, they need to have that kind of thing. That's how God has made us. We're pack animals, and, and we actually need to be with other people. Now, there are people like me who are more extreme, where I need to be with a whole lot of other people. And then there are people like Bill, who's happy with one or two people. <laughs> one or but, two, yes, but it's still not good for me to be alone either. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I'll be the first to tell you that, uh, that I, but, I, I have been alone, and it's not a good place to be. No, no. But I think that with the cyber world that we have today, where everyone interacts on Facebook or Snapchat or whatever the latest is, that's not real human interaction. No, and, and, and uh, it could we really need need that human that that face to face human interaction in our lives. That's right, and and you mentioned the millennials and their the problem with their relationships and intimacy because you can't be intimate unless you actually have a face to face relationship. There's no intimacy no. with a device. Okay, it's no. just not happening. 
And uh, so that's that isolation. You can I, I've seen a table load of people at, at what should be, and in Bourdain's terms, would have been a time of fellowship. There's food, there's drink, there's company. It should be great. And they're all texting each somebody else or maybe even each other, which is perverse. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've seen kids sitting back with their backs toward each other, texting each other because they can't look each other in the eye. My wife and I will do that sometimes if, you know, if we're looking for a movie or time or something like that, we're out to dinner somewhere and we both get on our phones and we're looking and every now and then I'll text her, hi, you know, like sitting three feet from her kind of thing. But uh, that's not a normal state of, of being for us necessarily. But unfortunately, with a lot of people, it really is. And uh, I think that we are raising a generation, if this is a way that they interact, of people who are going to really, really be struggling with depression and uh, uh, that separation from from others that's really unhealthy. And I I I fear it's going to lead to even higher rates of suicide and other problems. I think we already see it. I mean, the suicide rate among teenage boys especially is alarmingly high. Yeah. Um, I I would lump into that category these these uh, mass shooting incidences. That's your blaze of glory suicide. Yeah, it's yeah. it's they'll remember me. They're, my yeah. name will be remembered. Um, I will make I will leave a mark, and I will show all of them. You know, and and coupled with that also is is the bullying that occurs with that a- anonymity, where you don't have to see the pain in the other person's eyes while you're tormenting them on your device. See, again, it's that lack of, of intimacy and true fellowship, true communication, communion. Uh, we need that. If we don't have that, we, we just become animal. We're, we're just biological animals at that point, but we're not, we're more than animals. And, and that's the problem or it's the good thing. That's the gift of God. But we're, we're not, as you say, we're not just pack animals. We are made for community. Yes. Yeah. And human community is is messy and it's complex and it's wonderful. And you know, there's kind of like this this really bitter irony that that Bourdain saw it and he he was like a spokesman for it. Mm. Community and communion at table. Eat somebody's food. You know, yeah. get to know them. Don't don't travel through the world on a tour bus. But but you know, eat with some peasant in their hut or, you know, wherever you go, just just eat with the locals. And yet the funny thing is he he himself is alone and isolated, you know, by by I think the very media television, the, the medium is 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 a co-conspirator here. Interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, I, I I appreciate so much. And you pointed this out in that little piece that you wrote that he kind of taught us uh, a lot about. Going to a place in Cambodia, uh, out in the middle of nowhere, and sitting in a in a little hut with these people and eating things that you normally would not put in your mouth, <laughs> no. but <laughs> and not asking what is this, <laughs> right? And, you don't want to know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Bourdain didn't seem to learn the whole ignorance is bliss thing because he seemed to understand what he was putting in his mouth. Oh but, yeah, uh, <laughs> or as he put it, no, nothing that a course of antibiotics can't take care of. <laughs> right, right. Um, but but that experiencing life with others in such a profound way. 
and and how that is, I think to both of us, you and I both, such a romantic idea behind that, of of sharing in so many cultures. And I know you you had uh, you you had the benefit of uh, going to Italy and and uh, going on a little culinary tour there and and uh, having some meaningful interactions with people and yeah, with, with the uh, locals on their terms, yeah. kind of inspired by Bourdain. But you know, it all speaks to community. Yes. And and the importance that there is somebody who else somebody else in the world who knows that you exist. Yes. You know, and if we don't have that and unfortunately I think the American individualism is a kind of idolatry of the self. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we, we we sort of have idolized the, the man on his horse alone, self sufficient. And and you know we all rail against the it takes a it takes a village kind of thing. Well, sorry, it 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 we are made for community to serve one another to be as part of a network of vocation and love and respect. And and if you don't have that, if you live in isolation, it's a black hole. And if if you're in trouble, uh, there's no lifeline there. You're 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 in your canoe by yourself going over the falls, and yeah. and it's sad. You know, we should mention Kate Spade too, the designer. Yeah. I'm, I'm not into fashion, and I'm certainly not into handbags. But I know that I, I really didn't know much about her. I, I you know, I, I know her more from her brother-in-law, uh, who's the actor, whose brother, her husband, looks exactly like him. But but uh, David Spade. But but mm-hmm. uh, uh, she suffered from apparently depression, and she did leave a note uh, to her family, to her daughter, and. Uh, what a sadness for a teenage girl to have to process this, whether it's Bourdain's daughter, Kate Spade's daughter, um, to live with your your father, your mother, you know, killed themselves. Uh, there's this legacy of suicide that's so, so dark. You know, I, I called it an asterisk after everything. You can't look at a picture. You can't watch an episode of No Reservations. You can't pick up a Kate Spade handbag without that asterisk popping off in your head saying, but they killed themselves. Right. And, yeah. and you know, no. <laughs> you know, quite frankly, it ticks me off that that, that is. But anger is part of it, too. You got to you got to kind of got to roll with the anger. But, you know, for her, it's a it's a medical condition of depression. Depression is a, a medical problem. It's a medical condition. Uh, it has spiritual consequences. Yes, but it's medical and it's very difficult to treat. Bipolar, very difficult to treat. I think that these instances, uh, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, um, you know, so many Robin Williams, these these touch the nation in a way that leaves us saying, why? And, and we don't understand it. Here are people who are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams, uh, who are admired, who are, who are loved uh, by, by a public, but maybe not so much on a personal level. Uh, and and we're we're left asking these questions of why, but there are also those of us who suicide has touched in a personal way with friends or or even family. And uh, I'm given to think of a friend of mine who, in 1995, committed suicide. We were we were friends. I wouldn't say we were really close friends, but we were we were friends. We'd go shooting together every now and then, and go have lunch. He he was a pastor at a Presbyterian church. We were fellow Orange Countyans, uh, kind of refugees in St. Louis. I, I came out for seminary, and he came out to serve this church. Uh, but he ended up committing suicide, and, and he was just a really wonderful guy. He, he had movie star good looks. He had a gorgeous wife. He was an athlete. He was a mountain climber. He, he climbed 
the, all the big mountains that you would know of. I, I can't think of them right now, but um, you know, here's a guy who has this large, prosperous church and everything else, and he um, lost his leg. He got hit by a train. Uh, he went back to Colorado where he grew up, and he was going through a tunnel that he and his brother used to walk through all the time to go fishing. And uh, they changed the rules. The trains used to have to blow their horns five miles out, and they stopped. And so a big freight train came barreling down the, the tunnel at him, and he ran as fast as he could, but he could not run the train and clipped off his leg. And he went into a state of depression after all of this and, and had a real hard time and ended up committing suicide in July of 1995. And he published his letter. Well, his letter got published. What had happened was his family was going on vacation to uh, Hilton Head. And he said, I've got to go back a couple days early, take care of some business. You guys stay here. I'll see you when you get back. Have fun. And he came back and he gassed himself in his garage. Um, he had it all planned. But he wrote this letter to his elders uh, and he, he had it planned so that they would come and take off his body so his family wouldn't have to see it or anything. But he wrote this, gentlemen, these are some of the most strange and difficult words that I've ever attempted to write. How I came to be in this emotional state, I honestly do not know. Ever since the accident, it seems that I've been fighting a losing battle with depression and despair. I write this letter neither to justify my behavior nor to make anyone feel guilty for what has happened, but rather to apologize to our entire church. I know of nothing which any of you could have done to change my situation. Out of the countless sins that I have committed in this life, it is my own wretched weakness for which I am most ashamed. In the history of this great church, my office has been held by many fine and godly men. I'm deeply ashamed to know that I am the first one to fail it so miserably. I assure you, however, that this was never my intention. It seems that I am having some sort of nervous breakdown, and it's a terrifying feeling. Some of you even tried to warn me about the folly of trying to do too much too soon. God bless you, those of you who did. But the truth of the matter is, once I had jumped back in full stream, it seemed that there was just no slowing down. God forgive me for not being any stronger than I am. But when a minister becomes clinically depressed, there are very few places where he can turn for help, at least not without ruining his ministry. I did try to seek help where I could. I even went to see a local psychiatrist. Though not a believer, he's a fine man. He put me on Prozac. Then he doubled the dosage and still feels as if I'm sinking further and further into a downward spiral of depression. I feel like a drowning man trying frantically to lift up my head to take just one more breath. But one way or the other, I know that I'm going down. Forgive me for being such an unfaithful shepherd, but never doubt that God's word remains true, even if this messenger has fallen. Upon that one hope, I have staked, staked my entire life. Whatever desperate or foolish things I have done, it does not and cannot nullify the word of God. I would implore you that as the spiritual leaders of our church to remind our members of that great truth in this time of crisis. I would also beg you not to shun my family because of my own sinful deeds. I'm even more terrified for them at this moment than, my, than I am for myself. I have no right to ask this or anything of you, but I would urge you, gentlemen, to recognize that my family needs your help now more than ever before. 
May God have mercy upon my soul for the damage which I have caused to his church, his name, and worse of all, to my own beloved family. It's always been true, but now more than ever, I know that my only hope is in the blood of Christ. Yours in the name of our blessed Lord, our only hope in life and death. You know, here is a man who is suffering so much, and in the midst of it all, he's, he's staking it all on Christ. And, and he's saying, I know that this is horrid. I know that this is terrible. I know that this is crazy. But I know that Christ is greater than all of this. You know, and, it's, uh, it, it's, it's an amazing letter. It is. And, and at many, many, many levels, too. I was just kind of listening and, and making some mental notes while you're reading that. I, I'd not seen it before, so that was a first hearing for me. But, you know, the things I hear are very, very common to us in our profession, but in other people, in other, you know, it's not a, it's not a, an occupational hazard. In fact, the, the, the highest suicide is in, with construction workers and, and that, that in terms of vocation, they're the It used far, to be dentists, or at no, least that's what they no, used no, to no, say. Not, nothing, nothing <laughs> like, nothing like people in construction or, or destruction, lumber, lumber people. And the, the, those are the worst, but that may very well have to do with the, uh, the uncertainty of times and whatnot. Mm, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, the fear of failure, uh, the, the running, you know, just no slowing down. I, I think that was a factor with, with Bourdain, too, because when he, when he made the move to Parts Unknown, he said that now that he had a child, he wanted to kind of, you know, ease back on the travel. It had wrecked his first marriage, and he didn't want that to happen again. And then you, you began to notice how the production schedule picked up more and more and more and more and it was getting frenetic and I was like because I get all the new ones on my DVR and I think wow there's a lot of new stuff popping up here it didn't used to be like this and uh and so and then it of course it dissolved it destroyed his second marriage too uh but this running this running 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 and the fear of failure and uh the despair and hopelessness I, th- I think hopelessness is a is that's the black hole where there's no, there's, there's, you can't see any good. You can't see anything uh, positive coming out of this. There's no escape. And that's, that's the third one, the, entra- the entrapment. Uh, and to me, this is really scary because, because I think all of us at one time or another feel trapped. Whether trapped in circumstances, trapped in a place that you're in, trapped in a job that you're in, just whatever. And, you know, we have this animal fight or flight in us so we'll either claw our way out or we will run as fast as we can right and that's what he was doing in running but what if he can't run away from the darkness the demons the whatever what if you can't box with them because you can't land a punch you know what's the third option see and that's the problem is that the third option is that insidious thought that they're all better off without me and uh and that it's a solution. I asked one of my young, my my uh, one of my younger uh, members in the congregation who had three friends kill themselves. Three. Did you know wow. anybody who killed themselves when you were in high school? I didn't. I didn't personally know anyone. No, no. nobody. And I had yeah. a huge high school. There was always that. that one kid in the school two years ago who you know was something like that. Yeah, but. a little fishy. Maybe it was kind of like a goofy car wreck or something. Yeah. But, but not. I mean, not like intentionally killed themselves. And and this this kid had. three that he knew and I, I, I sat down and I, I asked him I said why I said why do they do this and, and he looks at me which is very deadpan and he says 
it's a viable alternative. Wow. A viable, viable means life, a viable alternative. And, and I was just, I was blown away, just utterly blown away by that. But when somebody says that suicide is irrational or they're not in their right mind, don't necessarily think that. No, okay. there, there are times this where man people thought are it very through. calculated. And yes, he yeah. wrote a letter. It's an articulate letter. I think the great sadness in that whole letter is probably the first time that he admitted that weakness in public. Probably because you you know you know the gig is pastors. You're not weak. You you are you are the man of God. You're strong. You're you're this on this. You know you you bear everybody else's weaknesses. And, and, and he certainly had, the, you know, the success and all the trappings and everything else. So he knew how to play that, that game. Yeah, but I don't they, know. First thing I ever say to a congregation when I arrive is, do not put me on a pedestal. I will disappoint you yeah. sorely. I come, don't I, do it. I come like an old pickup truck. I'm pre-dented. You know, I've got, yeah, right. <laughs> I, I've got a, a flat-left tire, and, you know, the transmission's really noisy. So, uh, but yeah, don't, please don't put me on a pedestal, because I will fall headlong. Oh, and yeah. I'll, I'll, I will let you down and, and embarrass everyone. And I'll crush everyone. you, too, don't, and that's, yeah. not, that's not good. No. So just don't, don't, don't stand under me, either. So, uh, yeah. But that just that just breaks your heart to hear to hear something like that, and um, you know this this leaves everyone scratching their heads and saying why. And I, I think also for a lot of us who who have a little bit of a savior complex in us, we we tend to think you know if only I'd reached out more, if if only, maybe there was something I could have done to stop him from doing this, and the answer is no, there's really not. He's going to do what he's going to do if he won't get the help that he needs. Uh, if if you reach out to him and he doesn't do it, good for you. But I wouldn't bank on that happening on a regular basis. Well, and I mean that's simply the grace of God in action. If if that happens, I guess we have a little shell game that we play. You know, it's like our Sunday best. We wear our Sunday best to church and we smile and and all of that. But we have a little shell game. You know, oh, how are you, Craig? I'm fine, thanks. Right? Yeah. And you're not. That's something that I, I really enjoyed about my Argentinian uh, parishioners in California. Of course, it also irritated me because I learned not to ask that question. <laughs> yeah, don't ask. Because they'll tell you. <laughs> they'll take a half an hour and tell you exactly yeah. every ache and pain and, and, and pain in the neck and everything. You know, just, yeah. But we do. We play that, that oh, everything's dandy. Yeah, and, and here where, where you used to live and where I still live in Southern California, that, I think that game gets played to an exquisitely high level. Because it is that it's that it's what we learn by watching celebrities. Yeah, you know yeah. when you see Bourdain talking to that Cambodian guy in his hut, always remember there's like six other people in that hut too: the lighting guy, the camera guy, the sound guy, the producer. Yeah. you know yeah. all kinds of people with clipboards. They're not alone. This is an illusion. No. It's all an illusion. Yeah. yeah, and and the reality is far uglier. And yeah, there's there's nothing as fake as reality TV. <laughs> <laughs> there is no reality TV. But, you know, unfortunately, we have our facades, too. You don't have to be on TV. You can be in the pulpit. I found it really interesting in the Czech Republic. That's one thing that they really don't like about Americans is, is they ask you, you know, Yaksi Daji, how, how's it going? And, and Americans are always, oh, great, wonderful. And, and But the Czech answer is, eh, okay, I guess, you know, pretty Okay, you know, come see, come saw kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Ask a uh, Russian that question. <laughs> oh man, you know. But I that's, think for a Czech, a, that's you a know, dark that, culture. That's dark. Oh. Yeah, that that middle ground is about as good as it gets. Yeah. You know, with the, that that eh, things are you know so so things are so so. 
You know, you, you know who the other big demographic of suicides is, is, is uh, men in their 60s. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, and and you know, that, what I is think that testosterone th- dropping through the floor. There's <laughs> yeah, no reason to live anymore. It what, is. What's up? Testosterone starts to drop at age forty, and uh, yeah, that's that's that that's to be not to be trite. That is part of it. Yes, it's like male identity is built around power, and and when you lose power, physical strength, or you know, like like Moses, his strength had not departed from him, and the guy was 120. But but um, that that's a that's a crisis. That's a, that's another uh, despair-making situation. There's a, there there are a lot of like despair triggers, um, and and you find yourself more and more saying, "I used to do this. You know, I used to play yeah. racquetball. I used to downhill ski. I used to windsurf. I used to whatever you used to do." And then you begin to realize that you're just living in this past tense. You you're not doing anything except getting fat and old. Um, the other thing is you're watching your legacy crumble. It's an Ecclesiastes moment where, where you realize that everything you work for amounts to nothing and it's going to be handed off to some idiot anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, the, you know, and that's, that's, that's harsh. That's very, very harsh. But and that's really depressing, Bill. Thank you. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> nothing, nothing under the sun is going to help. That's kind of the, the, the rough lesson of Bourdain. And, you know, I think Bourdain hit me hard because he's my age yeah you know it's like whoa too close dude too close but but you know king solomon who had it all did it all got the t-shirt you know and and in ecclesiastes he says there's no there there there's nothing 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 well i turned 54 next week and i am starting to find out i'm no longer fat and strong i'm just fat now (laughs) which is really disturbing because i used to be strong as a mule as well as fat but now it's starting to just be fat, and that's uh, I've I've got to I'm I'm on a kick to do something about this now. Yeah. You know, I've got to get my strength back. And well, I think I I think it's important. I think there's there's a certain level of self care that one has to one has to do in terms of you know you know staying active mentally, physically, staying in community, reaching out, talking, being involved outside of yourself. Uh, there's there's all kinds of things. These are long proactive things. When you when you're in the middle of it, you you don't have the strength the vision, anything to even get out of that. You, you, it's, it's like, you know, you go in this long lethargy spree where you can't exercise and you can't talk yourself into right. it. Right. You, you need somebody to just kick you in the rear end, i.e. a coach. You know, you need, you need somebody to do that. And living internally is a real bummer. Living, living with, because the devil loves this. That's the spiritual warfare side of it. You know, where does that, where does that thought come from? that killing yourself is a viable option that comes from the liar the old evil foe you know they they say one of the best cures for depression is getting outside of yourself and helping others and i i believe that there's something to that but i think the worst advice that you could give someone who's depressed is you need to get outside of yourself and go help others right yeah because there's right. no energy there's no strength to do that so, right that's you know, debilitating you know oh, that, yeah. when you hear that it's it's like that just you just poured some gasoline on my fire thank you i appreciate yeah, that right anything that begins with you need to or you yeah. should uh, you need you're being like job's friends yeah so I, I think maybe one of the best ways to approach that sort of thing is, hey, I need your help. Would you help me with this thing and and take them to yeah. a place where yeah. they can, you know, maybe a soup kitchen or something and just say, I really need your help. Could you, you know, and uh, I don't I don't even feel like getting out of bed. I don't you know, if you can help me, I'd really. Pre- OK. 
you know, and you, you can hopefully get someone to come and help you instead of this, you need to, it's help me. And uh, people will often respond positively to that. Now, sometimes you're so depressed that you just can't do that either. And I get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, once you're in that and there's, a, I think there's a difference between being depressed and suffering from clinical biological medical depression right those are those are different uh we all get depressed about stuff in fact i'm convinced that if you don't get depressed you're not paying attention <laughs> or thinking <laughs> Probably, yeah. you know I, I i was saying don't trust a happy theologian he's a stupid theologian uh yeah just you, you the you know the way this world is and operates can be very depressing Although and, I found a lot of liberation in just despairing altogether. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's all going to melt. It's all going to rust. It's all going to decay. Ah, screw it. Who cares? I did you a little uh, little searching about suicide in Scripture because your your example it raises some really tough questions for Christians too. Can can a Christian commit suicide? Your friend was a Christian. He was a Christian minister. Yeah, uh, I mean, he, and he wrote, and I think even he preached a sermon on his way out. Yeah, I know. How, how amazing is that? Yeah. Uh, you know, and in a sense, that's part of the self-justifying character. Suicide's very self-justifying. They'd be better off without me. Right. Um, I'm going to, you know, it, whereas it's true, God loves to raise the dead. Uh, you, you don't you don't get to pick the death. That's that's one thing you didn't you didn't get to pick the birth and you don't get to pick the death. But there's a self-justifying thing. As as the old Adam always wants to do, we always yeah. want to justify ourselves. But it's kind. Of, I find it. Uh, you know, a man's a Christian, and, and he pleads the blood of Christ on, in his last sentence that he writes. Uh, I, I, I wish my last words were going to be that good. I, you yeah. Know, uh, but, the, you know, the other thing is, is it unforgivable? Are, are suicides condemned to hell for committing suicide? Oh, well, that's a common teaching, and I don't know where it comes from. You know, uh, Luther grew up with it, because in his day, a suicide could not be buried in the church's uh, graveyard. They, they had their own special place. And Luther refused, by the way. He refused to do that. He, he would hmm. not go there. I mean, he famously somewhere said that people who take their own life are either under the influence of the devil or not in their right minds. Uh, but hmm. he would not go to the unpardonable sin. I actually remember being told somewhere that it's unforgivable because you can't repent of killing yourself. Well, the, the, um, I actually saw a video from Catholic Answers because I was curious about this question and, and what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And uh, in, in their catechism, it's covered in sections uh, or paragraphs 2280 to 2283. And 2283 is interesting because it closes with this. We should not despair of eternal salvation of persons who have taken their own lives by ways, ways known to him alone. <coughs> Excuse me. By ways known to him alone, God can provide the opportunity for salutary repentance. The church prays for persons who have taken their own lives. You know, it's saying that they don't necessarily go to hell, but... Uh, there's uh, hopefully a last-minute repentance there involved or something <laughs> like that. And that's kind of what the guy in the video says also, yeah. that, uh, you know, someone who ties a noose around their neck and kicks a stool out, you don't know if their last thoughts are, Lord, forgive me. Um, still not exactly very helpful theology, I it, don't think. It doesn't come out 24-karat 
gospel pure. No. Because because it still works with the notion of repentance as a transaction. And and that that was behind what I was told. That you can't repent of suicide because you die and then you can't repent. But uh, the the problem with that is that uh, who knows what my last thought or word is going to be when I go flying through the windshield in a car accident and die. <laughs> Uh, yeah, see, and 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 of course, then then of course, the Jesuits and the the uh, the uh, the scholastic dogmaticians come in and and slice the baloney even more thinly, and will say, well, you know, one was unintentional and one was intentional, and so we're going to get into the intentionality thing of it. And I think this itself is a theological black hole, which which, as Robert Capon likes to put it, does a really nice job of skirting the mystery. Or, I, I actually, you know, kind of, it's it's kind of doing an end around on Christ and refusing to let Christ do his Christ thing. I actually know what my last thought before death was, uh, because the day that I discovered that I'm allergic to tequila, I almost died, and uh, I I had um, my esophagus had closed up. I was choking on water basically, mm. and uh, I things were graying out, but. I had been arguing with a Calvinist apologist sitting across the table from me, and my last thought That'll is things drive were going gray. To despair, actually. My, my last thought is things were going gray. Is at least I died arguing with a Calvinist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I totally remember that thought as, as justifying clearly as himself the whole way. Do you, do you think the old Adam will ever shut up? No, no, no. Yeah, no at least I died arguing with a Calvinist. I, you know what? I want that on my gravestone. That's, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing, and and not. I mean, it's 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 the. Way way that the religious old Adam thinks is every single thing that we do becomes a self-justifying act, including, you know, the, the un, unmentionable of, of killing oneself. Yes. Uh, I, I think that there's value in, in, and this is a Lutheran way of looking at things, in maintaining a very sharp and almost terrifying tension uh, between embracing death as your friend and shaking your fist at death as conquered enemy. Mm. You know, true, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his children. True, blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they rest from their labors and their works do follow them. All true. Uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Tis true. I no longer live, but Christ who is in me lives. That's also true. See, and so what I'm saying is that in Christ, you can say those things. In Christ, you can shake your fist and give the finger to death because he's conquered it. But you can't do that in yourself. And if you do it in yourself, you are, you're opening up this black hole of uncertainty. And it leaves it, and you sense the uncertainty with the way the church talks about it. You sense the uncertainty with the way your friends and family talk about that. You know, and you can't offer false hopes. We don't have the only hopes that are worth anything are real hopes, you know, dead sure. and risen Jesus hopes. I like to go further than hope and go to promise. Well, and, hope, and, hope uh, is good. Hope is future oriented. You know, when you are hopeless, that's that's the epitome of despair. There is no future. I, I think that's what's besetting a lot of our kids they see no future. They don't have future plans. They don't want to. They don't even want to think about what they want to do when they grow up. Uh, they're living devoid of meaningful, intimate relationships, and so there's a hopelessness. That's as bad as isolation in my book. And if you're isolated and hopeless, you've you've got a bad situation on your hands. Yeah, uh, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about that, uh, how it. It tends to be more affluent cultures that have a higher suicide rate 
which is kind of interesting. But I think it's because perhaps you, you kind of reached the pinnacle. You know, you live in a country where the wealthy people have a color TV and an air conditioner and a car. Those are the wealthy people, and you aspire, hey, I can, I can do this. But when you grow up in a place where your poor people have a TV, a car, and air conditioning, and uh, your rich people are just insanely rich, and there's really nowhere to go from here, that you end up with this hopelessness, that the achievement, the gain of all of this leaves you empty in the end. And, and there's not that future hope of something better necessarily. You know, it's, there's a kind of an irony in Bourdain's travels in his show that he went to some very hopeless situations, places that are bombed out by civil war, places that are just wiped out by poverty or people living on dirt floors and eking out some sort of subsistence living. And you wonder what they think if they have heard the news that this man that they met, who brought all the TV cameras and and talked to them, you wonder what they think when they find out the news that he killed himself. Because if anybody had reason to despair of life, they did. And they didn't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's it's... I think it's because when you're a- actively engaged in in getting bread on your table and providing for your family and 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 your safety is threatened it's like you th- those those higher order things like meaning and purpose of life and and all of this kind of stuff that be- that's it's not it doesn't show up but when that's taken care of, when you know where your next next meal is coming from, and you're guaranteed a roof over your head, then the then the deeper things, the the things really of of the soul and the spirit, those are the things that come up, and and I think that's where where the devil has a a, a, a foothold, because you think that just because you're safe and secure, it's all good now, it's all going to be good, and and uh, you know the answer is no, it isn't. Yeah. And so it, I, I don't know. It, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of questions. As I said, I was kind of skimming through the Bible. The only suicide I could think of at the moment was Judas. Right. And Judas is, you know, the notorious one, the one who betrayed the Lord, the one who sold out Jesus, the one who tried to atone for his sins by giving back the money and the priests wouldn't absolve him. They said, you know, hey, that's none of our business. Get out of here. Uh, and then, you know, Matthew just records that he hung himself. So and and his life is kind of parallel to Peter, the disciple who denied Jesus at the time of his trial and who wept bitterly. Uh, and I kind of wonder: had what if Judas had come back to his community, to the twelve? What if he'd come back? What if he'd come back to Jesus and say, "I'm sorry"? What would Jesus have done? I'm sure that there would have been redemption. I forgive you all of your sins. Father, yeah. forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, you know. And that's kind of the tragedy with Judas is he, he went back to the wrong place, the, the, the non-community. He went back to the Pharisees, and they had, they had no, no absolution to give him. Right. And what, what, a, yeah. what a tragedy. But, you know, all the other suicides are kind of what I would call uh, political, <laughs> almost. 
Uh, you well, know, like, like Saul. Yeah, Saul's one of the biggest ones, right? Yeah, he's the first. He falls on his own sword. falls on his own sword because he doesn't yeah. want to be disgraced by his enemies. And in those days, boy, they knew how to disgrace your enemies. So, you know, I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying that's what a king does. When you're, well, when you're yeah. cornered, you fall on your sword. Take and, a look at the Middle East now. I mean, they, well, they he was still, injured. you know. You know, he was yeah, injured, too. So. The infidels, though, I mean, they'll, they'll play with your they'll oh, play they'll hang, with your they'll head. They'll hang you know? headless it's, from a bridge, you know, yeah. I mean, just, just to make a point. Um, and his armor bearer, too, uh, you know, just along with him because he's the loyal foot soldier. Uh, then you have, I, I, I just made a note of these, Abimelech and Ahithophel and Zimri. Uh, and these guys all had their, their what I would call, the, the, the thing that they have in common is that they were all trapped. That their enemies had surrounded them. There was no way out. Fight or flight wasn't going to work, so they fell on their sword. Now, Zimri is one that I don't even remember. That's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> well, uh, sort of a sort of a minor character in all of First Kings 16. Yeah, yeah, he gets like a whole paragraph he's one of the kings in the whole of Israel. Book. But still facing he he was looking he's at a, utter he's defeat. A utter defeat. No way out. Set his palace on fire. And he died oh. in it. Well, that's one way to do it. Yeah, well, it's you know, blaze of glory kind of thing. And and yeah. then and Samson is an interesting one. And and I I kind of I would put question marks at it. Was Samson a suicide? Well, you know, the Lord gave him strength when he was tied crosswise to the pillars of Dagon's temple for one last big show, and that's to pull the pillars down and crush the Philistine temple. And he, you know, Samson is one of those tragic Christ figures. You talk about the unheroic heroes. Yeah, that, that Samson is is one of these judges. He's a womanizer. He was just just a horrible person. I always point that out that after he slayed the Philistines, first thing he does is go to a brothel. Exactly, <laughs> just exactly amazing. Exactly right. But you know, I, I've heard it put this way also. Samson in his death destroyed more of God's enemies than in his life. Yeah, that's and right. That, that was kind of an interesting statement. I thought that's that's right. And and he's probably much more the 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 soldier who you know takes one for the team rather yeah. than rather than a suicide but you know even and I dare I say it and I I'm I've, I'm hesitant to but even some of the martyrs that the church celebrates you know not all those deaths were a hundred percent pure heroism no uh, in fact it was at the point where the church had to had to put a stop to it because you were getting you know people basically signing up for martyrdom. Right, right. And and it was a very, very fine line between dying for the faith and just kind of taking a quick exit. Uh, speaking of exit, I, I would commend for people's reading, if they're, they're into what I would call strong theological drink, is uh, Robert Capon's Exit 36, which is a work of fiction. It's a little novella that Capon wrote that kind of summarizes a lot of his theology. But it curiously, and it dovetails with your example, it deals with the death by suicide of an Anglican priest who mm. also at the time was happened to have an, an adulterous affair. So you get a kind of a two-for-one. You get adultery and suicide all in one package. And it's kind of Capon's Mystery of Christ repackaged as a novel so that you can probably read it more easily and not be as kind of bent out of shape by it. But it's really, really interesting. And it's a, a fascinating way of turning this puzzle around from a Christian perspective without immediately consigning uh, those who've taken their own life to the depths of hell. 
So I, I think a lot of what we've tried to do in this program is is put things into perspective for those of us who are left behind, um, who are trying to make sense of all of this. Uh, it's hard for pastors to talk about this because we have to go to extra, extra efforts to make sure that it never sounds like, well, it's a viable option, like like you said, that kid said, you know, that, uh, well, you know, this isn't working out so well, and to live is Christ, to die is gain, so I may as well just die now or something like that. That's that's not acceptable, and that's that's why we have to be extremely cautious when talking about this. Uh, suicide is awful. There's no well, two ways about it. And, and as pastors, to be very cautious about how we speak of uh, the the person who has taken their life when yes. we remember them, especially kids, because there's a kind of a false notion that you can get as a as a as a young person when a friend of yours uh, dies, and then you go to the memorial service, and all your friends show up. And they're all crying over you, and they bring candles, and they, and then they all get up and they say nice mm. things that they never said to you that you didn't. Mm. And so you you can see how in a, in an adolescent mind, yeah. it gets turned this way. If I kill yeah. myself, people will say nice things about me. Yeah, see? and and that is so utterly perverse and yet so rational at the same time that I think that's what my, my, you know, my young member meant when he said it's, it, in their mind at least, it's a viable option. People will say really nice things about me. And so I think we have to be careful how we speak of those things, not to play the part of God and judge uh, no. you know, who's, who's in and who's out. Right. Because let's face it, we don't go to hell uh, because of how bad our sins are, and we don't go to heaven because of how, how good our good works are. <laughs> it does, you know, that transaction has been dealt with on the cross, and right. and if we're not preaching Christ and Him crucified into all situations, then we're not speaking as Christians. There is grace for all. There is no sin outside of God's grace, except that ultimate ultimate sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But yeah. um, suicide is not it. Yeah, and, uh, is is it unforgivable? Well, you know, it, it as you as you parse that out, it it is no less forgivable than any other sin, nor more unforgivable. No, um, it is all answered for in Christ. I, I I like to think that that prayer that Jesus prayed for those who were driving nails into him, is is a sort of high priestly intercession on behalf of the world. That says, "Father, forgive them; they know not what they do." And uh, this is not a license. And but I don't think I actually don't think somebody who's who's got that little thought in their head that the world would be better off without me uh, is really looking for uh, a license or an excuse. I, I don't think that's it at all. Uh, in fact, I'm not totally convinced that anybody. Uh, can be scared out of committing suicide out of fear they're going to hell. Maybe they might. I don't know. I, I, I think rather that uh, knowing that you are a child of God, uh, knowing that uh, you are not alone in Christ, knowing that all of the irreconcilables of your life have been reconciled in Jesus' death, might uh, enable you to set aside that what you believe is a viable option and uh, you know, you're in, if you baptize, you're already dead anyway, and and to rejoice in the life that's yours in Christ. But, and what I'm saying is, there's a positive reason for living, 
rather yes. than rather than a negative reason for fleeing death. Um, you know, I guess what do you do? Uh, what what do we who are alive to do? Um, we have we have people around us. We have family. We have people who. You know, I don't know about you, but I know people who are are walking that thin edge sometimes, and yeah. and I worry. Yeah. Um, I, I guess all I can say is is to be honest with each other, and and if if those are your thoughts, and if that's where you're going, don't leave them in yourself because they only magnify and get worse. You know, you know, tell the people, reach out to the people around you, and if you have this, when you ask how you are, um. Prepare, prepare to to listen to a real answer and not just yeah. oh I'm fine be, thanks. Be ready to realize you might be talking to an Argentinian. <laughs> <laughs> but in all reality, I think Bill, a lot of what you were saying is also let people know that they're important to you, especially those who are struggling. That that they actually do bring something to life. And uh, if you're struggling with this and, and you have suicidal thoughts, please do call that number, 800-273-8255. That's a suicide prevention uh, lifeline. And um, there are people there who care, who can help, who can point you in the right directions, who can help you to get out of that dark place where you are. And uh, I know that uh, we do have listeners who are struggling with depression. I've I've talked to some of them. And... and uh, it's an ongoing problem, and, and uh, it's something that we have to deal with for life sometimes, and some more severely than others, but it's a real problem. And, and it is a, it's a community problem. I, I, was, I was just reading something from uh, UC San Diego, the, the medical school down there, um, and they were having a problem with physician suicide. Hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't think that. These are guys top of the game, the whole thing, but yeah. uh, an alarming rate. And they saw themselves as a community. And uh, with the help of some of the psychiatrists and psychologists in the department, they really, they got people to, they got the doctors to talk to each other because there's an ego-driven profession too. Oh, yeah. You know? And they're saviors. They're, they're the demigods. You know, they're, they're not weak. They're strong. They, they, they fight cancer and cure diseases and, and that. But, you know, inwardly, they can be haunted and dark and weak and depressed too, and, and sometimes massively so. And so they taught everybody as, as a community of physicians to look out for each other. Hmm. And to be that community, and and those th- that rate dropped to nearly zero, uh, simply by people acting like a community again, and that's not a bad that's not a bad way to look at it. Your congregation, your neighborhood, uh, to be a community, and uh, take a tip from guys like Bourdain: eat together and drink yeah. together and listen. You know, so and and, tr- and trust Christ even more boldly. <laughs> I'll, I'll go just one more thing here. Get involved with the community of the church, and if you don't have a church, seek one out that proclaims Christ and Him crucified for the remission of sins, who gives you the body and blood of Christ and rejoices in the life of the baptized. Can't live or die without it. So, hey, thanks for talking, Craig, and thanks for listening. Good stuff, Bill. All right, peace. Peace.